Hiya! Welcome to this week's Secret Life of Cookies. Bosco and I welcome Professor Evan Mandry, author of Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us. And really, I can think of no better person to explain not only last week's decision on affirmative action, but what it means for the future of colleges and college admission. I also baked a kind of wicked batch of brownies while talking with Evan, and you can find the recipe for this podcast and all my podcasts on my Substack newsletter at marissarothkopf.substack.com, along with a giant archive of recipes and stories of American kitchen history. There you can support my work with a subscription for $5 a month, or for Secret Life of Cookies listeners, you'll find a discount for a year's subscription. If that's not possible, you can subscribe for free. Just tell a friend or two about it. And don't forget to join Deep State Radio as a member for special perks. Either way, I am grateful for your support. Now, enough of me. Here's Evan. Hello, and welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies. I'm Marissa Roadcup, and I'm here in my kitchen on my side of town. And on the other side of town, or rightly quite close to me, is my guest, Evan Mandry, a professor at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, the place my mother used to call the John Jay College of Criminal Knowledge, but, you know, it was the olden days in New York City, and um, the author of a book that is so relevant right now, uh, Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us. Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies. Tell us the secret life Thanks. of elite colleges. Thanks for having me. It is. It's. It's really quite appropriate to have you here um, because of what happened last week with affirmative action um, with the Supreme Court, but truly this affirmative action decision, what's the impact going to be? Has, is it really going to change anything? Yeah, I mean, lots to, lots to be <laughs> determined. Um, and I think the, it's going to look a lot different at different colleges think it'll be different for like the colleges that have FU money, right. you know, and it's over $2 billion. Then it'll look at the colleges, you know, that have a half billion dollar endowment. But, you know, literally what happened is the Supreme Court ruled uh, Harvard and University of North Carolina's uh, affirmative action plans on constitutional. So one of the things um, when I was doing some background reading on you, you talked about how the, there was a shift. Um, in what affirmative action actually meant between sort of, I guess, between Kennedy and Johnson, and then it just sort of blossomed into meaning something completely different than what my wee liberal brain thinks it should mean. Yeah, I have a similarly wee <laughs> liberal brain. Um, but it's not such a complicated concept, right? Affirmative action was supposed to be about partially addressing historical discrimination in the United States. And instead, um, you know, for strategic reasons, um, Archibald Cox, who was, uh, um, he was a special prosecutor in Watergate and later a law professor and uh, attorney for Harvard, he argued the case in terms of the benefits of diversity. And it was an argument pitched to one particular Supreme Court justice, Lewis mm -hmm. Powell, and it worked. 
you know, Baki was a 5-4 decision and that remained the law, but you kind of planted the seeds of its undoing in that strategic choice. What, what, um, what happened to, um, what's going to happen to places like Harvard and the University of North Carolina? Like, is there going to be an immediate, is there an immediate reaction or immediate way they're going to react so that they don't have to worry about X, Y, or Z happening to them or no? So we don't know, right? I mean, their immediate reaction, all of these colleges, I mean, in the most literal sense, what they did was they sent out um, messages, sometimes video messages to their students, and they deplored the decision. And they almost all sent out messages to their existing students. And I have to say, um, you know, and I'm a long alum, um, I find the message offensive because the message to the students is we still value you as opposed to these Metrics that we used for admissions were racist in the first place and exclusionary in the first place. So you belong. It's not that you belong less. It's that they didn't really belong more. Um, Now, none of them have made any admission like that. Obviously, like legacy preference. I mean, it was indefensible before. How can you possibly defend a practice if you're not going to give a leg up to some students of color? How can you defend a practice that gives legs up to rich people? That note, now that you spell it out that way, is really just saying, we're so glad you're here, white people. We really, really are happy you're here. That's <laughs> Well, I, I think it's a really kind of important thing to say. I mean, they are glad in the literal sense, right? Yeah. I mean, these policies are kind of like, they're not the reason that the colleges have lots of rich students. They're the rationalization for having lots of rich students. Um, and... You know, it's serving their institutional interests. And I you know, I always say this, like, I wouldn't admire Harvard and Yale and Princeton if they did this. But at least if they said, hey, you know, we're not like we're not exactly a profit maximizing corporation, but we're a status maximizing corporation. Right. And we're in a race to get to a trillion dollar endowment. At least you would say they're honest as opposed to pretending like they're interested in social justice. Yeah, I think it's the pretending part that hurts all around. I mean, just from a person who just like put a daughter into college to my alma mater. Um, but she got it on her own merits, I swear. Um, because I went to a women's college, which are, you know, I went to Mount Holyoke, which explains actually what I'm making right now, which is um, I'm making a recipe for um, Mount Holyoke brownies, which is from an ancient like Western Massachusetts cookbook that I happened to find. So that's what you're hearing going on in the background here today. And I, I will deliver some to you. Um, <laughs> all the way across town, the dog and I will walk over there. Um, do you believe that there are going to be any real reaction by universities for this? Well, there'll be reaction. Other than that note. Yeah. I mean, they're going to do, there's a lot of, there's a lot of un, uncertainties in here and kind of like, you know, branched decision trees that are going to be hard to figure out. So they could kind of lean into doing class-based affirmative action, right? They, the thing is, and I don't think this has gotten as much airplay as it should have, if you're not allowed to do race-conscious policies and you're leaning into class-based affirmative action as a way of boosting your race diversity numbers, then I think by the Supreme Court lo- Court's logic, it's unconstitutional. The only kind of constitutional thing they could say is, hey, we 
you know, our practices were racist in the first place and we're just going to redo the whole thing or say, look, we just can't withstand the onslaught of public opinion. But I have to say, Marissa, you're like, you know, most people I talk to resist my argument. I mean, there are plenty of people who are sympathetic to it, but most people see these colleges as not just good actors, but great actors. How? how? Explain that to me. Um, I think you're, I mean, you're on my <laughs> yeah. team, so I'm happy. But I think we're the outliers on this. I mean, I talk about this some in my book. I mean, you know, it's people have a like a predisposition to kind of justifying the system to which they belong. Um, and so, you know, like when you, when you said that thing about your daughter, right. right? You said my daughter got in on her own merit. So I say this all the time. I just like reject the concept of merit. Right. Because because the problem with merit is if you say that somebody deserves. So like if Harvard says we've admitted the best and the brightest, well, it's a double edged sword. So then you think that the students that I teach at CUNY are the dumb and the, you know, worst and the dumbest. And it's just not true. So I think you could, you know, lots of people who get into these schools work hard, but lots of students I teach work yep. hard, too. Just most of them work hard at a job in addition to doing their studies. So, right. And I, you know, I teach at Montclair State and I teach some of the best and the brightest kids too. They just, I mean, students have said to me, I didn't want to take on $80,000 a year worth of debt, you know, because I'm not going to go into an industry that's going to pay me that much money or whatever it is, or just because who needs to take on that burden. So they have a fantastic opportunity at the City College of New York or at um, Montclair State to get a really good education. I mean, you're so, you know, if you teach, then you could see whether this resonates with you. I mean, what I would say, you know, I taught, I was, I went, I, I was, I taught when I was in law school too. So I've taught Harvard students for three years and I've taught CUNY students for, uh, I don't want to admit it, but 24 <laughs> years. You know, when you sit in a class, what I would say was true at Harvard, there really wasn't anybody there that I thought, hmm, this work is kind of above their head. They all could do the work. They had varying ability levels. Now at CUNY, I teach many students who could do the work at Harvard. I do teach some students who require some remediation, and that's very challenging to teach them in the same place. So I think it might make sense to talk about whether people sort of have the minimum qualifications or capacity to do the work at a place like this. But, you know, when you're a teacher in a classroom, there are I've never taught in a class where there wasn't a few really exceptional students. Right. Um and I, I mean, th does that make a place like City College or Montclair State more fair? Can we use a word like fair? I mean, I don't want to get all philosophical on you, but does that make it? Right. Instead of getting philosophical, we can get empirical and we can say that we could say that public colleges produce the lion's share of upward mobility in the United States. Okay. I mean, of if you look at the data in uh, Raj Chetty and John Friedman's ranking of colleges by how much upward mobility they produce, eight of the top 12 colleges are at CUNY. Now, sometimes people will say to me, okay, so why are we talking about elite colleges? Well, it's fair to talk about elite colleges because everybody who works in investment banking and management consulting in the tech sector goes to one of these places. Everybody who mm -hmm. ends up, you know, clerking for a Supreme Court justice has gone to college at one of these places. And 
And so they have an outsized impact on national policy. And I think that's why, you know, talking about diversification of the elite is fair and makes sense. So what drove you to write this book? I mean, it's like 101 question for a journalist to say, so why'd you write this book? But I really, I want to know, like, especially as a professor, what made you think, and someone who'd been to, I'll say it, to his own elite college and taught at an elite college. Um, what what drove what what was the point for you where you're like this needs to be talked about? Yeah, I have a lot of clarity on this. <laughs> um, I mean, my parents both went to CUNY, um, and you know, I've been at CUNY for 24 years, and um, I really couldn't stand the narratives that my classmates told about themselves and the students that mm -hmm. I teach. I, I, I think, you know, I don't, Brian Stevenson talks, uh, I, I, a lot of different, but Brian Stevenson, the, you know, the death penalty lawyer mm -hmm. talks about the importance of kind of, it's a way of thinking about getting outside of your bubble, but living in proximity to people in need. So all I've taught, 60% of CUNY students come from families making less than $30,000 a year. So I've spent a quarter century teaching poor students of color. And the story that rich white people tell about themselves mm -hmm. is that they deserve, they worked hard, they deserve the college that they, um, that they went to, and that the people who didn't get there didn't work as hard and then wouldn't be capable of doing the work. And I, I just I have such a visceral... It's just a type of bullying to me at a gut level, and I just hate it. So that's what sent me down the journey. But uh, I don't know whether people believe this. Like, I I started, I wrote an op-ed about legacy in the Times. I guess it's about eight mm -hmm. years ago. And I, I conceived of this book, and I was like, I, was, I wasn't a zealot. I was a skeptic. But then the more I investigated it, like, I just was like, wow, in its totality, it's so bad. And What it, is so bad? Every aspect of it. So, like... You know, like I spent a lot of time thinking about sports and, you know, people just watch Division One college basketball and football. So they think it's reasonably diverse, but it's not. By the time you're talking about Division Three football and basketball, it's principally white. And then Harvard runs 32 sports and they're basically all only accessible to rich people like, you know, lacrosse and alpine skiing and crew and squash and fencing. And so they're just all of these pathways are ways of just legitimating the admission of people of means and the exclusion of, 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 you know, people who are socioeconomically disadvantaged and disproportionately not white. So what, what is there to be, I just want to say as a disclaimer, by the way, that both of my children do elite white people sports. Um, but we try and give as much money as we can to make it possible to other people, especially in the town that we live in. Um, my son is on the crew team. Go blue. Um, anyway, what, what for you, um, and will there ever be an evening out for admission? Well, let me first, let me first just say to the, to you as a parent, and I say this to all parents, I'm making an institutional argument. I'm a parent mm -hmm. too, and I want the best for my kids. And I think there's a, there's a big difference between doing what's right for your kid and supporting or not opposing unjust institutional practices. Mm -hmm. So if you tell me your kid plays crew, I have no beef with you. If you tell me 
I want Brown to keep its crew team, well, then I'm going to be like, I, I think that's a mistake. And, you know, sp- sports, every European college has sports. They just have They're club, club sports. sports. And that's what sports are supposed to be about. They're supposed to be a par- participation and teamwork and learning. And this all can happen. But is there anybody in on the planet who cares how good Harvard's downhill skiing team is? It's preposterous. You know, I'm sorry, there are a handful of people, the alumni of that. Sure, and if I go to Goldman Sachs and I see I was on the Alpine ski team and the guy who interviews me was too, and we were made. <laughs> well, okay, so you say that, but it's there's a whole book which basically makes the argument you just made. Um, I read 100 books from my book. Um, but one of my favorites is a book called um, Pedigree. That's by Lauren uh-huh. Rivera, a sociologist. And she embedded herself in like the human resources department of uh, a consulting firm. I think it's Monitor. She doesn't say. And she says exactly what you just said. So first of all, they're only recruiting at five colleges. Mm -hmm. And then who they're picking there, they want people that they can play with. And so they see participation in sports like lacrosse and crew as proving character. And, you know, people don't talk about this, but I say it to my students all the time. If they worked at fast food, as so many of them mm-hmm. did, and I saw statistically something like 8% of Americans have worked at McDonald's in their McDonald's life. McDonald's alone. Right. Have, okay. <laughs> yeah, McDonald's alone. They have to take it off their resume. It's stigmatizing. Um, and so, so I don't think there'll be an evening out. I just think there can be a less unevening a significant less unevening. You're never going to get to a perfectly equitable society. But you you talk about like little things that can be done that could help to move the needle more than, well, we'll talk about what the suggestions are sort of from like Amy Coney Barrett about how you can like, you know, work the system for yourself in a second. But you talk about the, like the 1% changes that you, the incremental changes that you think will make a difference. Sure. I, I mean, there's no one size fits all solution. Um, I'll just put one thing on the table. Like, you know, Harvard has a $52 billion endowment and basically all of the colleges, they draw between four and four and a half percent on their endowment every year. And meanwhile, they're earning between 10 and 15% on their endowment every year and people are still giving them money. So their endowments are growing. What does the world look like if they increase the draw on their endowment by half a percent or a percent? Well, you know, a percent of $52 is $520 million. Um, That's more than Harvard and John Jay's operating budget combined. So, you know, none of these schools have expanded capacity or Yale slightly expanded capacity, but they haven't significantly expanded capacity in, in decades. And that's a simple solution. And, you know, they could eliminate. I mean, here's another simple solution. What would it take for... Harvard to have a partnership with Bunker Hill Community College and say, we'll let in your top five graduates every year. But all of a sudden, going to community college becomes a pathway to the elite. And there's no better predictor of success in college than success in college. Um, So they'd be smart, great students. And there's just lots of ideas like that. Harvard could run a partner with a high school and run a pipeline program. They, you know, ending uh, early admissions. Early admissions is very, very bad for. Why is that? They, oh, because they can't afford to commit to going to college without seeing their financial aid package. Right, which you can't do 
Like you just have to accept it. Yep. I'm just washing my hands. I'm washing the chocolate off my hands because that's the kind of conversation this is. So soon I'll be eating brownies and worrying about my own kids' applications. But go on, yes. I have one daughter who I sit as Colin and another who is um, 17. So this is the this is the summer, the precursor. How do you think? How do you think about the? Process? How do I think about the process? Do do I have a pan of brownies in front of me? Right, like this is not like why Xanax if I could eat these. Um, what do you what do you worry about? Because I, I I make an argument. I'll tell you exactly yeah. what I'm worried about. I'm worried that um, my kid, who is brilliant, a genius, my baby, um, and is a very uh, like ahead of his time at the, in the way that he thinks and what he thinks about just had a rotten time in high school. So instead of being in the top X percent of brilliant high school that he's at, where everybody is an overachiever. And that's kind of the, one of my, you know, one of the questions I want to talk about where everybody's an overachiever and high school wasn't right for you. Applying to college can be a challenge, especially when, I mean, so what if he has good SAT scores? Most places aren't going to look at that. So what if he, you know, was the captain of the crew team? They're not going to look at that. They're going to look at what his grades are or what his ranking is before they sort him out. If there are 15 kids from his college, from his high school who are applying to that college, can everyone hear the anxiety in my voice? Then they're going to go, well, this child has a five point. 83, which is like, you know, an actual almost possible GPA score now and other kids. Um, and he does not, but all, all his teachers say, but he's, you know, got a lot of a fantastic future ahead of him. But how do you explain that to a college when they're really just looking to make sure that they have, you know, in their U S news and world report ranking or whatever, it goes, Oh Yes. We um, got 58 billion ch- kids to apply to our college, but we only could accept 1% of them, you know? Like the letter from Colgate that came in the middle of my daughter's applying there that went, oh, what a season it's been. We've got so many kids, more than ever, who applied. Thank you. Have a nice day. And that was a, a letter. I mean, what's their point? Hooray for you, Colgate. Well, I do hear you. <laughs> I mean, I, I could go uh, on further if you wanted to, but that's just like a rough look. It's all changed and it's all become so different than when you or I went to college. The competition is ferocious. There are people out, kids out there curing cancer, you know, breastfeeding Cambodian infants and, um, you know, in an orphanage and getting 5.3s while being first chair in their violin. So how do you compete against that? Because they all want to go to Harvard and then they don't because Harvard can only accept so many and it starts trickling down. I mean, I do know the answer, but you, t- I have my answer, but you tell me that. Hey, you tell me the answer. I mean, I, I, I'm interested to hear how people process it. No, I want to yeah, hear from, you I want to hear from you first. You're my guest. Then I'll tell you what I think. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, I'll just validate every, <laughs> every parent is worried about their kids. So I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I understand that. I mean, I do think it'll work out okay. I think in your ranking of it, in your ranking of kind of what the colleges are looking at, you excluded something from the list. 
which is ability to pay. Oh, right. So, yeah. So, I mean, a realistic assessment of this would acknowledge both one's advantages and disadvantages. So if one's able to have their child apply early and can say that they're not going to accept financial aid, well, as a statistical matter, they've probably quintupled their kid's chance of getting into that college, maybe more. So you can't make any prediction about like whether you'd get into a specific college. And obviously, if you're targeting something, you know, a place like Harvard with a very, very low acceptance rate. And remember, the problem at a place like Harvard is, you know, Harvard has 43% of Harvard students are in ALDC. So an athlete legacy, child of a donor or faculty or staff member. Just repeat that percentage again. 43% of Harvard students are either a recruited athlete, child of an alum, meaning a legacy, child of a donor, or the child of a faculty or staff member. And so, you know, That's pretty it's, high. Yeah, it's a big number. I mean, you know, I, at Division three colleges like at Williams, like a third of people on campus are recruited athletes. I mean, they just have so many sports. So you're kind of running your competition like you'll hear, oh, they only admitted 3% of the students, but that's not really true. If you're not in that bucket, that ALDC bucket, which is a significantly higher admit rate, then you're competing for that 57% of the slots that are available and the admit rate there is lower. But, you know, if 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 you don't shoot the moon, like you don't try to get to the you know, to the highest ranked college that you could conceivably get into and you are able to pay and you apply early, you have a reasonable shot at getting into it. Yeah, and you have two early bullets to fire, so you can probably get in, but that's not the way the system is supposed to work. And and I mean, you know, compare your anxiety with the anxiety of the students that I teach. Uh, I mean, exactly. That's <laughs> I can't I can't say all that I say about what it and and be like and and not have the answer which I which I will offer you my my kind of point which is there are so many fantastic liberal arts schools if that's your bag it's my kid's bag liberal arts schools out there and that's where you should focus your attentions on I, I'm a very big believer in actually in a small school and that you really, if you're going to spend 80 gajillion dollars for college and, or, or not, you know, or, you know, just want to look to a place, there are fantastic liberal arts schools out there that you can have, you know, 12 other kids in the classroom instead of being, you know, and it can be a really great experience for you. So that's my, that's my gut feeling about it all, actually. Right. Yeah. And, you know. Unless your son was hell bent on getting to Goldman Sachs, it's it's not going to make a significant uh, difference in his life and you know whatever he wants to be. There's, I, I mean, there certainly for the students I teach, I always tell them that they're a lot. I'm sure they're a lot happier at CUNY than they would have been if they uh, had been the token poor person at Princeton. You know, and, um, there's a lot of research to suggest it's a lot better to be the big fish in a small pond in college than to you know than the inverse of that. <laughs> what is um what is the 
second edition of Poison Ivy, how elite colleges divide us going to look like? Is it going to change? Is there going to be, you know, if there were going to be Poison Ivy part two, what would the adjective be? You know, the awakening, the, uh, this time it's for real or, you know, I think, I think it'll Thunderdome. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Mad Max goes to Harvard. Um, uh, I'm pretty confident that, that things are going to change, um, for a variety of reasons. I just don't know what the pace of change is going to be. Um, elite colleges are under attack from both the left or the right and left and the right. So like, you know, the Trump administration imposed a, a 1.6% excise tax on colleges with the highest endowments, but, you know, didn't do any good. It just went into the general fund. It was just punitive. So it would be way better. Uh, elite colleges collectively get $20 billion a year in tax incentives, tax breaks. Um, cause remember your contribution to the endowment is tax deductible. The earnings on the endowment are tax deductible. They're exempt from state taxes, exempt from property taxes. They get, you know, they're treated like the church. Um, so the challenge will either come from the left or the right. It would make a lot more sense for the left to say, Hey, um, if you're going to continue to practice this, you're going to have to pay, or this is conditioned on you ending these most objectionable practices. I helped draft a bill that's pending in Massachusetts that imposes a, a public service fee on colleges that practice legacy or early admission and redirects that money to community colleges. How's the bill doing? Actually, it, it has some bipartisan support. I mean, I'm sure if it gets a lot of steam that the colleges will mobilize against it and then it'll be interesting. Uh, I'm on the verge of starting a nonprofit where we're trying to um, create a grassroots infrastructure of student organizations to lobby for change. So, you know, there are like first gen student organizations, but they're much more mutual support networks because it's so hard for those students to make it through college because they're all by themselves than they are saying, hey, you should change policies and admit more of us. Um, so, and, 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 you know, you've seen in the wake of, uh, of the Supreme Court decision, you saw a civil rights complaint against Harvard um, based on continuing legacy preference, the NAACP, Legal Defense Fund has gotten involved. Actually, the civil rights complaint is a very serious challenge. Um, and, and I really think that's the story. I think the story is how racist Harvard's existing policies are, race conscious or racial, you know, has they have a conscious disparate impact. So I think things will change now. Do I think it'll happen in 50 years, five years? I don't know. Like, I mean, I presume if you'd asked me this question, you know, in 1830, I would have said, yeah, I think slavery is going to end because it's morally indefensible. But would I have bet whether it would take 30 years or 130 years? I, I don't know. And and that's what it is. But I, I mean, you know, I speak about my book a lot and these issues a lot and tons of young people get this. Tons of Tons of young people who are know the beneficiaries of different types of privilege are are willing to acknowledge that and um so and i think there's hosts of there's lots of data on this young people are just generally much better than our generation is totally um, completely agree so presuming that there's still a democracy and still a planet to live on i'm optimistic yeah 
not optimistic about the democracy and the planet. Oh, you are? I am optimistic. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> no, I'm, optimistic. I'm more optimistic about colleges changing than I am about the uh, first two things. <laughs> this is a great conversation. Um, I'm glad to cheer you up. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, one of the things that I, I, I had wanted to bring up is, you know, I talk about it in in, this, in certain terms and people, you know, and it's being talked about this whole what affirmative action this decision means. But the thing that it really, really draws attention to is just how, I mean, okay, no surprise, but when you start to put figures behind it about how racist and how uh, the admissions policy has been and really how it's sort of all been not so carefully hidden behind a veil. Oh, I'm glad you see that. That's right. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I, and I, I don't know how you're going to tell, and maybe, maybe you have an answer for this. How are you going to tell the big elite colleges to say no to people who are going to give their college a billion dollars for a new track and field or a billion or a couple million dollars for a new wing of X, you know, dormitory? Would you, would you turn it down? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, would I personally turn, you know, one of my classmates just gave Harvard $300 million. And, it wasn't um, you though. You're just living yeah. humbly. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, 299.9 million short of 300 million. Uh, they, uh, Harvard couldn't even articulate what it was going to do with the money. $300 million just at, you know, at 5% return would basically be free tuition for every graduate student at John Jay in perpetuity. 10% return, it's basically covering tuition for half our undergraduates. Our, our endowment is something like $7 million. It's nothing, right? You're asking a great question. I mean, there's a, there's a podcast in which Malcolm Gladwell asks the then president of Stanford, John Hennessy, whether there's ever a circumstance under which he would turn down a contribution and say that it could do much more good at the University of California, California, and Hennessy goes, mm, well, that would be a hard thing to do. I mean, these colleges need to be shamed. And I mean, unless they're willing to make explicit commitments to say, okay, we're going to get to a point where 40% of our students are Pell Grant eligible, or we're going to double the number of students that come from the lowest income quintile, then those contributions shouldn't be tax exempt. Um, I mean, you know, th these institutions are supposed to work in the public good. So either they should be admitting a diverse set of diverse student body, or they should be producing people who become, you know, teachers and firefighters. But of course, that's the job of my college, not it's not what Harvard does. Right. And it, it would be wonderful. I, I mean, I love the idea of someone saying, no, 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 give that money to Beacon Hill Community College instead and let everybody go through there and have a fair shake at Harvard. I'm, I'm, I'm more opt I'm, I'm optimistic about this. I, I've seen even in the rhetoric about affirmative action and, you know, in, in the, in the kind of like the stories that have been told in the aftermath of the, the Supreme Court's decision. I've seen a fair number of people focus on the underlying injustice of the system. So I think it's going to get harder and harder for these colleges to defend the status quo. But they have a lot of resources. They spend a lot of money on lobbying. I am under no delusion that it'll be easy. But I've just, 
I'm doing this for a very long time. I've never heard anybody make a cogent argument in defense of legacy. So <laughs> like, what are you going to do? Like, oh, why do you have slavery? Oh, well, our ancestors, oh, I benefit from it. Okay, well, that's not really an ethical argument. That's just a selfish right. argument. So it's the um, it's the same, it's a very similar argument. Um, okay, so let's just uh, as our last question here, um, you're up against uh, Amy Coney Barrett, who's basically become an I think you know a high school college admissions counselor for America, and said, "But what if?" And I am totally simplifying what she had to say, but what if? Instead of, you know, you getting to tick that box that says you are African-American, Native American, whatever, just talk about the hardships that you've had in your essay. How's that going? What do you think? Well, I wrote a whole piece about this. I, I think she's right. Where can people um, read the in, piece? Is it? Uh, it's in Politico. It's called uh, How How White People... Uh, Stole affirmative action and insurance demise. It's a, no, it's a. It's like, not, I, I not did. Not I did read it, and it was a brilliant piece. Um, I think I actually have Thanks. one of your quotes right here in front of me. Using this approach, the white lacrosse player, third generation Harvardian, sounds like Harvardy cheese, and billionaires' kids are enriching classrooms with their diversity. Right. Yeah, that's the diversity argument, right? The rich white person is a contribution to the classroom, just like so. I think Amy Coney Barrett is sort of right as a constitutional matter. So it wouldn't violate the Equal Protection Clause for an applicant to talk about their experience of racism or their experience of disadvantage. And I think they will. Uh, and in that political piece, I, I quote a college consultant who says he thinks people will double down on it. It's rational for them to do it. I just want to flag that that is going to advantage rich people further because it will be the person who works with a college counselor and understands how to game the system, who will understand the narrative to put forward about their experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I love, I love a book um, by um, a woman named Emmy Nietfeld. It's called Acceptance. You should have her on your okay. podcast. She's a lovely person. Um, I can. Can you I hook can me up? Thanks. <laughs> and um, she, she, she grew up, incredibly disadvantaged. Her mother was a hoarder. Uh, Emmy, it's E-M-I, ended up in the foster care system. Um, and But she had this kind of like preternatural sense of self. And so everybody's trying to tell her to go to like a community college and, uh, you know, and, and she's like, no, I'm going to go to Harvard. But she applied early first to Yale and she blew it. And it part because of the story that she told about her own life. And I, I work with, I've worked with hundreds of people who applied to law school and you have to tell the right story about your disadvantage. You have to say you, 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 you had some obstacles, but you overcame them and you've grown from the experience mm -hmm. as opposed to the truth for basically everybody who grew up poor, probably middle-class. It's true for me too is Nah, you know, childhood was challenging in these ways, and I've kind of never gotten over <laughs> it. And you know, problems resurface all the time. And you know, for my students, their families are always re-emerging. I always like visualize them as almost like dragging them down off a lifeboat, and that's reality. But that's not the story that you can tell. So the Amy Coney Barrett thing, I, I just am very, very skeptical that that is going to produce 
lots of socioeconomic diversity. And I'm actually even skeptical it's going to produce kind of race diversity, but you have, you know, complicated issue there of, you know, people self-identify with race. So what exactly you're counting and who's counting it? So um, that is a, I, I don't know. I, I'd love to say that I come away with this with a little bit. I do come away with this with some hope. Okay. I will say that you've given me hope that things might change. And once again, and I feel like I'm ending so many of my podcasts or talking about this on my podcast, you know, those, that next generation of kids, they're much more aware of everything than we are. And I just, but I don't want them to have to fix it all. Right. And let me just add just something else to make you feel optimistic. So as, as a parent there, you can, it's not, it's not mutually exclusive. You can fight for the best for your kid and also fight for more just institutions. And, you know, we're all hypocrites to some extent. I certainly am. But degrees of hypocrisy matter. And there are more and less just communities. I happen to think that we live in a, in a reasonably just community. I, it's obviously imperfect, um, but I'm very proud that we live in a community that, um, you know, tries to produce diversity, has a plan to actually produce diversity among its schools. And, and, and the educators routinely talk about equity. And I think those things make a difference. Now, you know, are rich people going to figure out a way to game the system? Sure. But, you know, just just keep swinging. There's a lot of good you can do. And you have a platform and, you know, it, it's fine to worry about your kid. And it's also fine to, you know, think about how you make Mount Holyoke do its bit. Um, because you have two, you know, you have a student and an alum there. So, so do it. Mount Holyoke is actually doing an exceptional job. So I'm actually very proud of Mount Holyoke. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> and onwards and upwards, but they're doing a very good job. Um, so um, thank you very much for this, um, for coming on, for coming on so quickly. Um, I'm sorry you're not here to bake brownies with me, but I'm really grateful for, for being very clear about what is going on and how ghastly it is, but also offering up a little bit of what we can do um well i'm grateful to you and i'm i'm very sad i didn't get to make <laughs> there will be a chance um so i really do recommend your book poison ivy how elite colleges divide us um i think it's a really important book like as they say now more than ever for us to read and understand what's out there and what's possible so i thank you very much i think it's a much more hopeful and honest book than maybe what happened in the Supreme Court last week. Well, thank you, Marissa. <laughs> I really, I really appreciate being here and, um, and your Thank time. you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find Evan's book, Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us, wherever the finest books are sold. And you can find the recipes and links to everything you want and need at marissarothkoff.substack.com or on the Deep State Radio website. Have a great week.